This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by LA Opera artist-in-residence, Matthew O'Coin, a conductor and composer who is conducting LA Opera's performances of the Philip Glass opera, Akhenaten. We'll talk about what O'Coin calls the luminous patience of Philip Glass's music and what he says is the power of basic musical materials to create something truly great. Artist in residence for Los Angeles opera Matthew O'Coin joins us on the podcast. Artist in residence means uh, exactly what? Well, I'm a strange breed of composer conductor, um, and that doesn't fit so neatly under any familiar title. So, uh, my colleagues at LA Opera were creative and open minded enough to create this role for me, which integrates both composing and conducting. What it means practically is that I will conduct a couple of shows, a couple of operas per season at LA Opera, and also I will be the whole time composing a full-length opera, which will premiere here uh, in about three years. And in the interim, we will perform a lot of my other music, both operas and vocal chamber music and that kind of thing. So I feel like I've been let loose in a candy shop. What's the state of opera in the United States right now? Uh, young composers such as yourself writing operas? Is it difficult to get commissions for operas because they're expensive? What is, uh, what's the climate like right now? We're at a very exciting moment. A lot of listeners and musicians and administrators have, I think, realized that there is a hunger for new work and also that Opera is engaging with other art forms in our world, whether it's other genres of music that we've been raised on as composers or what's happening in cinema or in visual arts, and that if you allow opera to bloom and become this total gathering of the art forms, it'll actually draw on things from all over culture all over our culture that we live in. So that hunger is very exciting. I do think that opera is on the verge of an identity crisis without maybe always being aware of it. I I was so struck last year when David Gockley of San Francisco Opera and formerly of, of Houston Grand Opera said that opera is, you know, and always has been a bourgeois art form. And he meant it as a criticism of certain pieces that were not, to his mind, fit for bourgeois consumption. And I was kind of shocked because it was like, what about Lulu or Peleas et Melisande or about the sort of erotic Baroque operas? What about these pieces is like comfortably middle class and... Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth. (laughs) You know, even if even if we try to put them in cozy packages sometimes, the music has always, to me, seemed pretty wild and pretty boundary-pushing. So I think that opera is going to have to confront this question of, are we like a safe art form? Are we... There's a great line by by the poet D.A. Powell who said he doesn't want to create art that provides comfort to the comfortable. 
And it's like, do we want to do that? Do we want to provide comfort to the comfortable? Or do we want to expand people's worlds, their minds? Do we want to bring in audiences who come from all walks of life? I think you can probably tell I'm of the, I'm of the latter opinion. Opera has always uh, been a, a, an art form that goes through these, as you say, identity crises. Yes. Uh, it, it evolves from from one thing to another thing to um, to where it where it is now. And sometimes it's hard to define what something is when you're right in the middle of it, when it's in the present, and you can't look back on it because you're in the middle of it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels like opera used to be, even uh, you know, to the mid part of the 20th century, um, and you can correct me when you feel I've gone too far, um, but it feels to me like opera, even midway through the 20th century, was still about um, sort of extravagance and opulence, and uh, let's see what we can do with all of these different elements, and it really feels like now opera is um, leaner, and it's more about conveying, um, if not necessarily narrative drama, at least conveying human drama. You know, at the moment, I'm conducting Philip Glass's Akhenaten here at, at LA Opera, and that piece is grand with a capital G. It's it's definitely on grand as opposed to off grand in, in, <laughs> in, in, in LA Opera terms. Um, and there is definitely still a place for that kind of of spectacular in both senses of the word, music making and and art making. But I I also think you're completely right, and I would identify the reason for opera's shift from the grand to the more intimate, the leaner, possibly meaner forms, is that it's no longer the grandest possible art form. Um, in Right up until, I think you were totally on the money with your timeline, right up until about the mid-20th century, there was no grander spectacle in mainstream Western art than a big opera with a hundred people in the chorus and a hundred people in the orchestra and superstar and big sets and all of those things. But can we really compete with a U2 concert? Can we really compete with a Justin Bieber concert when it comes to sheer grandiosity and money? Would we even want to? (laughs) We can't. And I wouldn't want to. Um, And this brings us to another essential aspect of opera, which is the vocal training. Opera is not defined by the lack of amplification, but it is, to my mind, defined by a mode of singing, which is about communicating in an unamplified way. You can, of course, use light amplification, Nixon in China, or Ted Hearn's piece, The Source, which I'll be seeing in about 90 minutes. But it's about this kind of vocal production, which is about direct communication from me to you with no with no mediation. And I'm totally okay with that being a subculture. We're kind of underneath the pop radar And that is so artistically liberating. I mean, like, it's just kind of hard to imagine working within the constraints of mainstream pop music. Like, I would never want that. And, um, you know, maybe Donizetti kind of had to. Composers, in, in moments when you're writing for the biggest possible mainstream spectacle, you have the shackles on. 
Oh, God, I'm, uh, that, that's something Trump said recently, didn't he? <laughs> Shackles. It's terrible how these things get into your brain. That's all right. That's all right. Um, opera is for everyone. Mm-hmm. So Philip Glass, for example, is, um, you mentioned sort of the, the pop sensibility. He's a composer that weirdly has uh, become really popular in the pop music world as well. I'm thinking last time L.A. Opera did a Philip Glass opera, I was at um, one of the performances, Einstein on the Beach, um, who should saunter into the performance but Kim Kardashian and <laughs> Kanye West. Like, these are people who come to see Philip Glass. Is the audience for his music, particularly, I guess, for his operas, is the audience different from the audience for Verdi or Puccini or, or Bellini? It is, um, and there are a few factors that I would point to for why. Some are kind of obvious, like uh, Mr. Glass has written tons of film music. He's much more well-known to non-opera-going segments of our population. Um, But there's a a deeper reason, too, uh, and I think it has something to do with the current love for binging, (laughs) binge-watching. Okay. There's a, a tendency when you're writing new operas to say, don't make it too long or too grand or too, you know, opulent. And one of the things I admire about Philip Glass is that he has gone so far in the other direction. This is a long and epic piece, and if you commit to it from the first scene, it feels like you are in this other state and other world, which changes the way time passes. And I think that's actually something that a lot of people want. It's, it's the same kind of zone that you get in if you, if you, you know, binge watch Stranger Things. And it's something that is actually artistically courageous, but at the same time, it, it, it does have the effect of bringing different audiences in. Mm-hmm. Has his music or has him as a person been an influence on you? It's funny, I have a different approach to composition, certainly, but there's a lot that I respect and admire. I think I have a a restless imagination, and I tend to want to explore internal variety in a piece. I think that if I were to start in the same place as, as Mr. Glass, to just take the first few bars and, and let's say just for a thought experiment that I was just given two bars and we were both given the same two bars to start a piece, we probably would wander in very (laughs) different directions. But I admire his patience. It's a kind of luminous patience. He knows exactly how many times to repeat a gesture in order to maximize the impact of the change to the next gesture. And... That is something Nico Muley, who of course started out as as Mr. Glass's assistant early on, made a great observation, which is that a lot of composers who imitate Glass, they imitate his textures without imitating his process. And it's easy to imitate the textures. It's easy to say, oh yes, well, Philip Glass, it's major chords, minor, it's for all, for, you know. <laughs> but that doesn't engage with the patience of the process Um, and that's something that it's taken me a long time to appreciate Mm -hmm. and what better way to appreciate it more deeply than immersing myself in a piece as I am with with Akhenaten Mm -hmm. now I love that you use the word patience 
because that was a thing that I really noticed um, seeing Einstein, which is, you know, four and a half hours, no intermission. And it was, you know, it was, oh, come and go as you please, whatever. And so, you know, my wife and I went to it and we're thinking, okay, you know, we'll, we'll see how long we last. And then, you know, we'll, we'll try, to, try to last for as long as we can. And then when we're done, we're done. And it ended up being we were so bummed about halfway through when we're like, we look at each other. We both like, I uh, got to go to the bathroom. And so we went and took our break and then rushed back into the... And that feels like a disaster. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, I couldn't believe how quickly five hours, you know, flew by. And in a way, I think, like, with with patience, in a way, this music can almost sort of give you the gift of time. Mm -hmm. In a world where we don't have time and we find excuses to not take the time to do things, Mm -hmm. like... We almost need to be put into a situation where the thing that we are focusing on is the thing that gives us the time that we need. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I really feel like, um, at least for me, Einstein did that for me. And I think Akhenaten will, uh, for for, for people who are thinking about whether or not they should come, it's... it's, uh, We've started running big chunks of it in rehearsal, you know, an entire act, for example. And, you know, when you're working on little bits... It's, it can be quite challenging to get everyone into the flow of it. And then you run an entire act and it passes as if barely two minutes had gone by. And, you know, it's 45 minutes of music. This one actually is not quite five hours. <laughs> <laughs> right. What is the total time? Um, maybe three. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like compact. So it's, it's watching a Lord of the Rings movie. <laughs> um, uh, but it it just evaporates. Yeah. And now it doesn't do that if you're like staring at your watch the whole time. You do have to commit yourself to the music, but it does, yeah. Exactly. But the more you give to it, the more it'll give to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is um, the third in the series of three. Einstein is, is number one, and uh, Satyagraha, the Gandhi opera, is number two, and this Akhenaten is number three. How much do these three uh, Philip Glass operas relate to one another? How similar is this to... Uh, Einstein or Satyagraha? It's closer to Satyagraha than to Einstein, which is fitting, I think, because, of course, there are about three revolutionary thinkers, Einstein, Gandhi, and Akhenaten himself. And Einstein expanded our understanding of the universe, and I think, fittingly, Mr. Glass's techniques are wide-ranging and what we would think of as, you know, downtown experimental. Um, (laughs) And Gandhi and Akhenaten, as figures, were more about radical simplicity, the courage of nonviolent resistance in the case of Gandhi, and the previously unthinkable decision to reduce the whole pantheon of Egyptian gods down to one. Um, For me, those things have a lot in common. It's like, no, you don't have to fight wars in a conventional way. You can just stand still. I mean, but in in the most dangerous place and with the most inner resilience. And in the case of Akhenaten to say, you no, we don't need to invent a god for every natural phenomenon, all we need is the sun, and we're going to worship the sun. And I find there's a, a deep connection between the act of saying, nope, not many gods, only one god, and the act of saying, 
no, not all the musical complexity of 20th century, only A minor, <laughs> as Glass does at the beginning of, of, of Akhenaten. Not that the whole piece is in A minor or anything like that, but it's about affirmation of the power of these very basic musical materials. And so it's, it's a really great match of subject to music. Mm-hmm. How does he tell the story? Is it um, sort of in, in scenes? Like Einstein doesn't really tell a story. How does Philip Glass sort of attack the narrative of, of what he's trying to convey? Well, this is much more of a narrative than Einstein, but only relatively, and I didn't even mean to make that Einstein pun. Um, it is a narrative in that we follow Akhenaten from the death of his father through his coronation as pharaoh, um, through his radical decision to essentially murder the gods, except for the sun god, through his reign, uh, through his downfall. So there is an arc to that, but uh, if you expect... Arya's sort of explaining this or enacting it in an obvious way, you will be disappointed. That is, unless you are like a native speaker of ancient Egyptian, (laughs) because the opera is in ancient Egyptian and Akkadian um, with briefer passages in Hebrew and only one in English. Um, So it's pretty clear, I think, in each scene what essentially is happening but moment to moment, you won't be hearing words, at least not words that you know. Um, and one of the most brilliant touches, I find, is that the one moment that's in English is when Akhenaten sings a prayer to the sun. And he called himself the son of the sun. He basically claimed that he was the direct descendant of the only god. Um, so it's an incredibly intimate moment. He's communing with the sun Um, and so suddenly it becomes a language that we can understand it's very subtle you might not even notice it at first you might not notice that these are words that you've heard before that's interesting but there it is yeah in your mind how does uh, do can we draw a lot of parallels um to like the current state of of politics um the merging of religion and politics, the uh, proclamations from politicians, either here in the United States or uh, I guess it could be tempting to think about, you know, Tahrir Square since we're set in Egypt um, and and certain political leaders proclaiming things about religion and, and forcing them on people or encouraging people to uh, believe in a certain way. Is there, are there parallels there or is that being too sort of simplistic in the interpretation? It's a tough one. Um, Anthony Rothcastanzo, the countertenor, who is our Akhenaten, um, and who is doing just a sensational job embodying Akhenaten, um, he and I have talked a lot about the question that arose for him, which is, is Akhenaten good or bad? A force for good in the world, or just like a dictator? And I don't think there's a direct parallel, because, uh, at least not one that's too close to us culturally, because... Um, essentially church and state were unified before Akhenaten and he kept them unified but just changed the religion. However, there is a a deeper relevance for religions after Akhenaten. So the sun uh, is referred to as Aten and some linguists 
believe that that word became part of the Hebrew word Adonai. I don't speak Hebrew, so I'm probably butchering it. <laughs> but there seems to have been a connection between Akhenaten's monotheism and the founding of Judaism, which, of course, became the foundation for the monotheistic faiths in the world today. Because Akhenaten, you know, after he was overthrown, Egypt went right back to what they'd been believing beforehand, and actually he was struck from history. It's amazing. If you look at the the wall carvings, the word that represented his name, the hieroglyph for his name, has been stabbed out mm. all over the place. He was literally erased from history. But the idea was planted. It was still... People were aware of it, and 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 who knows? This is all pre-Moses. So there is a fascinating link to our world, but I think it's a more distant one. Yeah, yeah. So the three operas of, of Philip Glass that we've mentioned in this conversation seem to be his three most uh, often performed. Casual fans uh, may not realize he's written like 20 mm-hmm. operas or so. Why don't uh, we see more performances of his operas? Well, actually, I think he's he might be the most produced opera composer alive. It is, as you said, largely due to some of the earlier pieces. But these earlier pieces were not produced constantly from the moment um, that they premiered. Uh, it took a couple decades for that to pick up steam. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Um, the same may very well happen. Um, but I've seen a heck of a lot of productions of his Kafka opera, The Trial. I think the revised Appomattox is going to be appealing to a lot of people. I have to admit, I don't know every one. I sure. think it's, yeah. it's, it's hard to track all of them down. The Walt Disney um, one. Which our director, Phelan McDermott, also uh, directed, actually. Yeah, time will tell. I, I, I know a great opera historian who, who says that uh, Don Giovanni is basically the only uh, well, at least until that point in opera history, was the only one that went straight into the repertoire. Hmm. For almost every piece, there's some kind of a lag. Because if you think about it, you know, operas are being premiered all the time, and we don't necessarily want to hold on to every single one. <laughs> we need to sift a little bit and say, okay, we need that. There's, a, there's something in there that we cannot get anywhere else. Hmm. But that takes time. Yeah. Uh, as a conductor, what are some of the challenges uh, conducting the music of Philip Glass, the operas of Philip Glass? Well, I'm so grateful that I have jazz training. I'm so deeply grateful because, and I swear this is going to be relevant, in, <laughs> in, in middle school when I started studying jazz piano, um, my, my teachers would have the, the, everyone playing spend about half an hour at the beginning of every session practicing rhythms. And there were these rhythm sheets with basic jazz rhythms. So you would sit there and go, ba-dum, dum, dum, ba-dum, dum, dum, ba-dum, for half an hour. And for a 12-year-old, that is excruciating. (laughs) But it implanted this sense of groove and the ability to maintain a groove forever, basically. I, I can groove all day and night, I, and I will not change tempo. Um, wow. And, and that is something that, I hate to say, is not taught in classical training. I actually believe that rhythm is not really taught at all. You're taught to read them, but you're not taught to 
feel them. And the rhythmic motion in Philip Glass's music depends on a non-classical sensibility of, of consistency. So it's, it's astonishingly hard to get these very skilled singers and musicians to groove. You'd think it would actually be native to us because we're Americans and most of our pop music is based on groove. But, you know, if you spend your professional life doing a vast variety of other styles, maybe your groove muscle's a little bit out of shape. So yeah, that's the big challenge with conducting this music is tapping into a primal sense of steadiness. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm conducting a Mozart opera or a, a Verdi opera, I'm constantly paying attention to the differences, the subtle differences, the shadings of the phrase, you know, what can come out. What, with, with glass, it's actually the opposite challenge. It's about simplicity and about having the strength to not vary anything at all. And that means, above all, the, the, the rhythm. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Brian. Matthew O'Coin is LA Opera's artist in residence. He's conducting the run of Akhenaten by Philip Glass this month at LA Opera. The production stars Anthony Roth Costanzo in the title role and Janai Bridges as Nefertiti, Akhenaten's wife. Six performances through November 27th. For more information, visit laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. <laughs> <laughs>